hey there, hi there, ho there, I am alive, you are alive, and I've got a lot of stuff to talk about today. The second half of the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about guts and talk about how gut and uh, your gut, my gut, and the microbiota within our gut is actually connected to our emotions and maybe even connected to the way that we develop our understanding and our definition of emotions. The stuff that's going to be coming from the mind-gut connection by Dr. Emerin Mayer. So stick around for that. That's going to be in the feature section, which is usually the second part. I'm always hesitant to say second half. I have a lot of stuff again this week. You know, I was worried <laughs> this week. I didn't think I had a bunch, but once I sat down and started putting things together, I realized, wow, I do have a fair amount of stuff this week. So that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Hopefully you think it's a good thing because otherwise, why are you here? <laughs> so I also happen to have a little bit of uh, tidbit stuff. I've been collecting little things here and there and realizing that sometimes, you know, I just have a little tidbit that I want to share and it's nothing bigger than the tidbit. So that's what I'm going to share right now. We'll start a little bit with going back to the 1950s, maybe into the 1960s, the Beat Generation. These are a group of writers who had a huge influence on me when I was a younger man, teenager. And... Because of that, that influenced in some way carried with me the rest of my life. We're usually talking about people like Jack Kerouac. But today, I or this week, I learned something really interesting about William S. Burroughs and Mr. Allen Ginsberg. There, I've always been aware that there was this book that was a collection of letters that were written between William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg called the Yage Letters. I think that's how you pronounce it. There's an accent there, and I'm not sure there's an accent on that E, but I'm going to say Yage because I don't want to sound dumber. But go in the wrong direction with that pronunciation. Maybe I should have looked it up. I would have been smart. Anyways, there's been a book that I've seen for years called the Yage Letters. I knew basically what it was. Some of the Yage Letters in some way bled into David Cronenberg's film adaptation of William Burroughs' Naked Lunch. A lot of the stuff about the insects and the drugs, the powder, the bug powder that he's taking in the movie. Some of that apparently comes from the Yage letters, even though this isn't about powder. So I'd always known about it, but, you know, it was just Yage. Yage was always just this South American drug that they went after, that they went looking for. And I always kind of more associated it with the Naked Lunch movie. Just, I always thought it was like a, like a kind of, a, I think it's a black powder in the movie. It's been a few years since I've seen the film. But turns out, yage is just another word for ayahuasca. You know, ayahuasca, the thing that's super popular right now for people to talk about, this mind-altering thing that everybody's always bragging about. It's the hottest thing. They call it ayahuasca tourism, where people go down there now and go on trips with culanderos, or I think that's how you say it. Obviously, I'm not super averse in this stuff. 
I'm not a hallucinogen person. I could have been. There was a period of time where I was really interested in it. It just didn't work out for me. But turns out that William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg were decades ahead of these people. So I want to read the age letters because I, I know a little bit about ayahuasca. I've known people who have taken it. I read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which is not just about ayahuasca. In fact, I'm not even sure he goes into ayahuasca much in it. He focuses more on other hallucinogens. But I know a fair amount about this stuff, but I want to see it through their experience because this is like before all of this. And it's before even, I think, all the ethnobotanists, like the McKenna brothers, got hot to it. Actually, I, I wonder, I'm curious if the McKenna brothers went in search of ayahuasca because of the beats. It's quite possible they were very influential in that way. So anyways, that's a little tidbit I learned. Yage is ayahuasca. The other little tidbits I have actually come from a magazine. Uh, I mentioned before the streaming book service. Scribd that I use. Well, one of the things that comes with Scribd is access to magazines, magazine subscriptions. It's a little different than other, the way that other services do it. You know, like if you do Apple News Plus, you're getting kind of similar to articles of the magazine. It looks very similar to the magazine, but it is perfected or maybe perfected is not the right word, but it's aimed more with the knowledge that people are going to be looking at this on a mobile experience and it's highlightable like a web page. Whereas if you go with a, some of the other services where you get digital magazines, some of them are just straight up PDFs. It's just plain old PDFs. This is neither of those. It's literally the text of the article and the images, if there are images included from the magazine, sorry, I said article, but I meant magazine article. It is confusing, but it's put onto script website so that it's locked down for only subscribers. It's a very different experience because each page or each story, maybe is a better way to say it in the magazine, in each of these magazines is like clicking into a blog. It's, it's kind of trippy. It's not bad reading it on the computer. I just really don't like reading it on mobile. So I haven't been using the magazine subscriptions because of that, but now I've been making time, which we will be talking about in a little bit about me and time. I've been making time to uh, read the magazines that I'm getting, some of the ones that I'm interested in on the computer. And one of the ones I've been reading is 40 and times 40 and times is a paranormal magazine. This is from, these are three little snippets from issue 409, which I believe is their most recent issue. First one is from a really brief article on super centurions. Centurions are people that are hundred years or older. Quote, the oldest person currently living is Kane Tanaka from Fukuoka, Japan, who is 118. The world's second oldest person is Lucille Randon a French nun known as Sister Andre, who survived a coronavirus infection to celebrate her 117th birthday on the 11th of February. 
the Bishop of Toulon celebrated a mass in her honor and the care home where she's a resident put on a sumptuous birthday feast for her. Good for her. The menu included foie gras, capon with mushroom, and baked Alaska, Sister Andre's favorite dessert. And it was washed down with red wine, one of the things to which Sister Andre credits her longevity and champagne. Well, I guess if you make it to 118 years old and you survive coronavirus at 117, we can make exceptions for you to eat foie gras. <laughs> Although I'm sure knowing the French foie gras is probably still legal over there. If you don't know why foie gras is, was made illegal, it's because they force feed the bird until basically it bursts. It's apparently pretty cruel. I don't know a lot about it. Anyways, next article. This is from something called Sidelines, which is just literally their snippets. Lonnie J. Hutton, 49, was arrested in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, after walking into a bar, dropping his trousers, and attempting to have sex with a cash machine. <laughs> bar staff escorted Hutton outside, where he once again dropped his trousers, and this time attempted intercourse with a wooden picnic table. The arresting officer said Hutton appeared to be intoxicated and smelled of alcohol. I'm not sure you can put that one down to alcohol. I'm really not. I don't know. I don't drink anymore, but I drank a fair amount in my day, and I don't remember an alcohol that made a cash machine and a wooden picnic table turn me on. Or even one that made me think that they were something that I would want to turn me on. Maybe ayahuasca. Maybe some EH. All right, one more. This is from an article called Avian Mysteries. If you've been around here long enough, you know that I like to poke at the flat earthers. And in particular, the space, space is fake movement. People that think that space doesn't exist. This is a new one to me. The birds aren't real conspiracy contends that all birds in the United States have been killed and swapped with drones operated by the federal government, and that this has been going on since the 1950s. It's pretty impressive considering how much technology sucked in the 1950s. I think the evidence is all around us. Birds sit on power lines. We believe they're charging on power lines. We believe that bird poop on cars is liquid tracking apparatus, said the movement leader Peter McIndoe. The organization has been alerting the public to protest social media and on a subreddit with nearly 400,000 members and is now taking a rally on the road around the U.S. to get the message across, dubbing the secret Poultry Gate. Okay, before your head explodes, as mine almost did, I did read a little bit more about this, at least in the article that they had there, and apparently, I believe the original intention I don't know if it was Peter Mikendo. I can't remember. The original intention was satire. And a lot of the people on the subreddit think it's satire, but unfortunately, there are a lot of people that now believe this satire is true. So there are people out there that think that there are no more birds and that those are government-controlled robots. But, you know, I'm going to tell you something really weird. This is something that I wrote in my journal two days before. 
I read about this birds aren't real thing. I was walking the dog in one of our favorite spots on one of our evening walks, and I heard a goose. You know that honk the goose makes? And I looked up, and a perfect V of geese flew over us. I could have probably thrown a rock and easily hit one. They were really low, just barely above the tree. So I could see the detail of them pretty well. And geese are big and they were close. I could hear the sound of their wings. You know, they're not flapping fast. They're just slowly flapping, like flap, flap, just enough to stay afloat in the air. But here's the weird thing that I wrote in the journal before I read this thing about birds being machines. The sound of their wings was oddly mechanical. I'm not joking. I don't know how to describe it. Not mechanical as in, but you know the sound of metal parts moving? Like, something like that. That's kind of what it sounded like. I'm just assuming that that is what it sounds like when air hits feathers. But I thought it was weird that two days before I wrote that these geese sounded oddly metallic. And then here's this. Birds aren't real. They're actually <laughs> federal spies. <laughs> Spy machines. It does beg the question. If they have technology so good to create mechanical birds, why are they bothering with drones? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, oh, I do. I have something to add to this. Have you guys seen the fake trees? Now, this is real. This is not a conspiracy. The, the fake trees, they're uh, cell phone towers. And they look like the fakest trees ever. I guess it's supposed to, I don't think it's for us. It's not for us to think that they're trees. It's for animals to think they're trees. But what if the pretend birds out there, the pretend spy birds out there are landing on the fake trees? Ooh, it's a whole new reality. <laughs> All right. That's enough for the tidbits. I do have an announcement to make. The original podcast that was in this feed back in 2016 was a show with me and a co-host by the name of Lam Wen. If you go back to episode 35, I had a brief phone call with him in the feed. You know, the echoey phone call I put in. Well, Lam and I have decided to bring Random Badassery back. This will be the, technically, I guess, the fifth season. We did two seasons on the first run, and then we did another season on a third run. And then we did a show called Brainstorms that wasn't intended to be the same show, but afterwards I realized it was just a series. So that technically counts as a fourth season. So we're bringing this back. We're going to try to do it monthly. It's nice for me just to have some conversation. It's nice for you guys if you like this show, you like hearing the things I talk about. It's a different perspective over there because it's conversation. And because I put so much prep into this show, like for example, today's show was about seven to eight hours of prep, not counting the reading the book time, <laughs> reading the books time. The idea over there is we don't prep for the show, which sounds awful, but we love talking to each other and we never have a problem talk, finding things to talk about. But I have all of my notes from over the years in my note app of choice, Obsidian and Obsidian has this awesome thing called the random button. So we start to talk a little bit and I will hit the random button and whatever comes up, we steer the conversation toward what comes up. 
And we talk about that for a little while and then I hit the button again and we steer. That's the way that we're doing that show. And we did our first episode, which is why I'm telling you. And it went really well. The whole random button thing, uh, to quote Lamb, I couldn't have imagined it going better. So we're going to continue with that. It's available on at least the major podcast platforms. It's on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon. I haven't checked out all the little ones. We've only done one episode so far. All the old episodes are there. But when I was in the conversation, I was excited. I was enjoying myself. And I ended up telling Lamb a story. And I ended up telling Lamb the story of why my grandfather believed in UFOs. And how that related to a magazine that I got in the mail the other day. And that was a story that I was planning on telling you guys in this episode. So instead of retelling the story, I'm going to, I'm going to actually pull a clip from that show where I tell that story to Lamb and I'm going to insert it right here. You know, I'm going to tell you, we'll talk about coincidence, weird coincidence. That's where I'll spin off from this. Um, I'll tell you a story that I was, I'll probably retell this on my solo podcast too, but so my grandfather, uh, I think I've told you in the, in the past, my grandfather was hugely conservative person. I don't mean just politically. I mean, just like he was a very no bullshit kind of person. Like he was a, a gregarious, he wasn't a, a, a stiff person. He was very gregarious. He like, he would go to the grocery store for like three hours and just talk to strangers. He loved people. Huh. He was very, he's not the person who is known for flights of fancy. But when he was a young man, he saw something in the sky that he could never explain. Mm. And his whole life, that's the only anomaly in his whole life, literally his whole life, everything else in his life was cut and dry, made sense, meat and potatoes. We're talking about a guy who used to ham, his idea of a ham sandwich was ham and bread. That's no mustard, no mayo, just ham and bread. And he would drink a pot of coffee every day, like just straight laced in that sense. But he was a young man and he was out, he was out hunting in the San Jose foothills. He was a young man. So we're talking probably 1920s, 1930s, somewhere in there. It was just him and his uncle, I believe. And his uncle had a, a duck call. And uh, you know what those are, the little, like yeah, the, yeah. Those, those guys on Duck Dynasty made. So they had separated. And he was going down this gulch. So it's like this, you know, dipped down, probably a dry creek bed of some sort. And he heard the duck call. So he got his gun and he looked up. And he looked up because he's expecting, you know, that usually that flushes the ducks out. And he looks up and he said he saw this metallic thing moving in the sky above him, I think he said it was like 30, 40 feet above him, like not far, far away. And he said it was the size of two football fields. Whoa. And it was moving very fast. He said it probably went past him in about 10 seconds. So for something that's like, oh, and completely silent. And nothing in the world in the 1920s, actually there's nothing in, in the world now that's that size that's in the air. Yeah. So it blew his mind and he was like a young man. It blew his mind, like no idea what to do with it. And we're talking about a man who he had to stop going to school in the, after the sixth grade, because he had to go to work, you know, cause it was depression. Sure. So, so he worked in, in orchards and then he went into the army and he was, he was 
I don't know if this is why he became obsessed. I think it's probably because he was only allowed the sixth grade education, but he became a book nerd. This is where right. I get it from. And he would read and read and read and read. And when he was in the army during World War II, he was a drill sergeant. And he had a bunch of guys from the South who didn't know how to read. And he taught these guys how to read. So wow. a very, very literate man, right? Mm -hmm. Not, not in the sense that he was literary, but he was literate. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you were to come to my house right now, there's these bookshelves that are still full of the books that he had. And it's like mostly history books, but then there's one section of one shelf that's about nine or 10 books on UFOs. Wow. And he bought those because he was trying to make sense of what he saw. And he could never jibe it with his perspective on the rest of life. He could never make that fit in because he was so straight laced, right? So, sure. so because of that, he was always voraciously reading about UFOs as well as history. Like he used to read natural geographics cover to cover. He also used to read the newspaper every day, cover to cover. When he died, I was in the garage and there was this box of magazines. It was like Reader's Digest. He, he, was, he loved Reader's Digest. This is back when Reader's Digest was like really quality. I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was like a quality magazine. And underneath, there was a stack of these magazines called Fate Magazines. And these are like paranormal magazines from the 60s. And there were 33 of them, right? And mm -hmm. they're extraordinary because they're like of the high, high period of like that UFO craze and all of that. And it's not just about UFOs. There's other stuff in there too, which there's stuff in there. I'm like, I can't believe my grandfather was reading about like witchcraft and stuff like that. <laughs> but, but anyways, I found these, these magazines and I'm, they're still in great condition. So I, I brought them in the house and I'm, I put them on my bookshelf. I dusted them off and I started flipping through them a little bit. I perused through them over the years. And then I think it was three, four months ago, it struck me. I'm like, I wonder if they're still in business. Like his fate magazine is still in business. You know what? Cause I would love to continue that on for him. I know mm. he, I'm interested in those topics anyways, but I would love to continue that on for him. Like pick up his subscription, subscribe to it again. So I looked it up. They do still exist. So I, I immediately, I went, okay, let's see. How do I subscribe? They're not doing super well. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think these put 12 issues out a year or something like that, you know, like a normal magazine, normal in air quotes. This is more like buy the magazine, pre-buy the magazine. And then when they're printed, we send them to you. Uh -huh. um, so I bought it. I, you know, I said, whatever, I'll just buy an issue. And I, I, I guess I didn't read it that much, but when you get the new issue, they also send you a classic issue, which is no. super, super fucking awesome. Right? Wow. So that came today. This is where I'm going with this whole story, but you needed all that backstory to understand this. I opened it up today and I'm like, okay, here's the new issue. Oh, it's, it's kind of a different format. You can tell that it's, it, you know, it's like, it's stapled together. It's not bound like the other ones were like, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're still kind of struggling, but totally stoked to support them. And then I go, what's this underneath? Oh, it's the classic magazine. Wow. I didn't know I was going to get one of those. And I look at it and I go, huh, hopefully it's not one of the ones I already have, but you know, I only have like 33 of them, which is actually a lot, but they, they, they've been in publication since before the sixties. I think they went all the way back to the fifties. That's a, that's a lot of magazines, right? Yeah, no kidding. So in reality, I have 33. They've probably put out, you know, probably close to 400 or something like that, right? So yeah. the chances of me getting one that I already have slim. So I go over and I'm like, okay, the issue they send me is volume 27, issue two. 
So I go through and I'm like, okay, I'm going through the numbers. Guess what? The last book that I have of my grandfather is volume 27, issue one. Whoa. So the book they sent me literally fits right at the end of the ones I have. It's literally Man. the next book. What are the chances? That's crazy. That's crazy coincidence. I mean, it's a, that's a one in 400 chance. That's, that's shocking, actually. It's mine. I mean, there's only two, only two ways it would have been that mind blowing. If it had been one before the first one I have mm. or the one after the last one. Yep. Unbelievable. So we'll call that two in 400 chance uh -huh. or, or one in one in 200. And that's sure. even, I might even be underestimating the amount of issues they have by a lot. Yeah. That doesn't sound right. I expect that they have a lot more. Yeah. Cause if they did 12 a year. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot more, way more. It might be like two in a thousand or something like that. Well, that's 120 a decade. So, I mean, however many decades we're talking about here, they're probably up, up at about a thousand. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how cool is that though? I was like, <laughs> that's pretty rad, man. That's amazing. Okay. Well, there's a small taste of random badassery. It's mostly me talking because it is my story. Wilhelm does talk more in the actual episodes. If you want to go check that out, once again, all the major podcast apps. Probably most of the small ones too. All right. Next topic I want to talk about. If you, if you notice I'm moving a little fast here, it's because I really have a lot. I probably have more than I had last week. I want to talk a little bit about productivity. In particular, some things that have been going on with my productivity recently. The first part of this has to do with the concept of work time or creative time every day. As you know, I've had problems with sleep deprivation and anxiety and so many things that are probably all 100% tied together over the years that kind of crippled me. And it crippled me for a while, which I'm now safely at least one foot out of. I'm, I'm afraid to say any more than that, but I'm on my way, at least right now. I'm doing well. So at the same time that I've been moving myself out of this, I've been rereading a book that I love called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. And this is a book, it's really basically vignettes of, I'd say close to a hundred different creators. It's not just artists, but it does focus more on the artistic, like a lot about writers. But each little vignette is research that he's done about what their daily ritual was like. What did they do every day? How did they get the stuff that they got done, done? What did it look like for them? This is not modern creators. For the most part, it's actually generations before us. You know, the big guns, like the, like the Picassos and the Hemingways and the John Cheevers and those people, Kurt Vonnegut, all of these, Isaac Asimov, all these big names. I love this book. I've read it multiple times. This time what I've been doing, I've had it in the bathroom. So in the morning when I'm in the bathroom, sometimes, you know, you're sitting there for a little while, I pull out and read a couple of vignettes. So I've been working through that through the last year as I've been working through my sleep and anxiety problems. And because of that, this time I noticed something that I, I, I probably noticed it before, but it seemed really obvious this time going through. Consistently, I would say 90%, if not as much as 95% of the creators in that book dedicated many hours every day to their craft. In particular, 
a huge chunk, close to probably 70%, dedicated four hours a day to their craft. Some more, some a little bit less, but four hours seemed to be this thing that came up consistently. And it's been a number that's been bugging me. Every time that I've tried to implement some sort of system, I've tried to implement four hours because of reading this. You know, it worked for all them. That's a mistake. I'm just going to, before I go any further, there's a mistake you can make when reading a book like that. If it worked for them, it'll work for me. No, everything isn't for everyone. You have to figure out what works for you. And four hours did not work for me. And to, it got to a certain point, as I've said before, where I was only able to get one hour and that was through a lot of willpower and the aim was just one hour. Can I get just one hour? I was hoping maybe if I could just get one hour, then I can get two, then maybe I can get three. Maybe I can get up to that four. Well, I had this weird thought, I want to say last week, but it was probably two weeks ago. I had this strange thought. I, I probably had just finished reading part of the book. And I was thinking about all the years that I used to work before I worked for myself, when I used to work for other people. The normal nine to five job, right? Quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here. I would go to work on a consistent basis, for the most part, five days a week, and put in eight, in reality, nine hours, because even though you're not working on your lunch, you're also not at home, eight or nine hours of my day working for someone else. And that made me ask myself a question. If I had the willpower, the energy to do that for someone else for eight hours, nine hours a day, when I was catering, sometimes 12 to 16 hours a day, why can't I do that for myself? What would happen if I actually looked at my creative output as a full-time job? What if I told myself I'm going to work eight hours a day? And that sounds insane, right? I couldn't do four. I could barely do one. How am I going to do eight? Well, first of all, I just said my sleep and my anxiety have improved. So that's given me a ton of energy. We've been talking about that in the last four or five episodes. So that's a big difference there too. But the, the thing is, it's not even the number. It's the lens of looking through that and going, wait, I'm working for myself. Eight hours a day working for myself. And the other thing that I realized in going through that process is what I was doing wrong with the four hours and probably even the one hour. Although it's harder to see in the one hour because it's so short. But the four hour was nonstop work, 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 work. No breathing room at all. Four hours. But when we work for other people, that's not really what we do. Some of us, you know, some of us are extraordinary employees, but the average employee, especially me, a lot of the experience I had working for other people, a lot of it was as a younger man, not career work, just job work. You don't really work, 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 work for that eight hours. You know, like when I had office jobs and cubicles and stuff, you get to work, you sit at the computer, turn it on, look at some email, and you go get some coffee. Then you come back and now, okay, oh man, there's something in my email I got to work on. Work, 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 break time. And you go on a break, 
you come back, look at some email. Oh God, there's something I got to do. Work, 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 lunch time. Go to lunch for an hour. Come back. Look at some email. Maybe go talk to your neighbor. BS a little bit. Work, 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 work. And then kind of coast your way like the last hour. That's kind of closer to most people's working reality than work, 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 solid eight hours. So what if I took that same thing and applied that to my eight hours? What if instead of trying to make myself work, 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 work for eight hours, what if I gave myself breathers? What if I gave myself space? What if when I finished the task and I felt a little burnt, I told myself I could have a 15 minute break and just go lay on the bed and listen to a podcast or do nothing. You know, what if every time I wanted to get a snack, I could get up and get a snack. You know, what if I didn't give myself that same stricture that I was giving in the four hours? So that's the lens that I've been thinking of. And, and in order to really begin to attack the possibility of that eight hours, I had to ask myself, what do I want to do in all that time? You know, it's not just going to be like one task. That's a stupid goal for me, at least. Because it means if I get tired of that one thing, then I'm just not going to work anymore. I've got to have other things. But I also had to ask myself the question of what things are actually beneficial. You know, I say I'm doing this for my creative output. What activities should I be doing? And in particular, I tried to look through things through a unitary lens. What is my main goal right now? What is my main goal right now? My main goal right now is to make the best damn podcast episode I can every week. Any other creative work I do on top of that is icing. But the one thing that I focus my week towards that matters to me most is this right now and the things that I have to bring into this. So what activities can I, can, do I need to do? What activities should I be doing? What activities do I want to be doing that will help this and in some way help other creative things as well? So here's the list that I came up with. I want to read fiction every day. I want to read fiction for one hour every day. Now, the way that I've been accomplishing this is a little bit sneaky, but I might've mentioned this in the last episode. If not, I talked about this with my patrons over on Patreon. The way I'm doing this is through audiobooks, because I realized unless I'm studying a specific fictional book, I don't need to take notes on it. It's not like when I read nonfiction. I just really want to get lost in the story and enjoy the story. And that's a, it's a better use of my time to listen to fiction, to quote unquote, read fiction with my ears while I do my one hour to one and a half hour walk of the dog every morning instead of listening to podcasts. Because in all honesty, my, po my podcast listening is better served if I'm in front of paper or a computer where I can take notes, not while I'm walking. So I know how I'm going to do that one. That's an easy one. One hour taken care of. Other thing I want to do feeds the second half, at least of every one of these episodes is I need to read at least one hour of nonfiction every day because I've focused the second half of the show about something I'm learning from a nonfiction book. So I want to do an hour of that every day. Another thing that I want to read more of is quality articles and in magazines and on blogs. And I want to do that 30 minutes a day. 
I want to review my highlight, my Kindle highlights at the end of every day so that even though I've read that nonfiction for an hour, I want to sit down at the end of the day and look at all the things that I highlighted and I want to summarize them in my notes to make sure that I don't forget why I highlighted those things and why they matter to me and make sure I don't lose the understanding that I gained. And I want to do that 30 minutes every day. I want to go into Obsidian, my note app, and I want to look at old notes. And I want to remember, I want to do that so I can remember notes that I've forgotten about, parts of books and things that I've forgotten about. And in order to also look at them and make new connections with new knowledge that I have. And I want to do that 30 minutes every day. Optimally, I want to do 10 notes a day. And I will use that random button that I mentioned earlier. I will hit that random button 10 times to bring up 10 random notes. I also want to move 10 old notes from my paper notebooks. I want to copy them into my digital notebook every day. That's 30 minutes a day as well. I want to free write every day. This is a little bit different from something else I'm going to talk about, which is writing a diary entry. Free writing is more about, it's similar to morning pages that Julia Cameron talks about. But it's usually, because I'm not doing it first thing in the morning, it's usually topical. It has something to do with something that I'm working through, some kind of thought process that I'm having. It has less, less to do about me as a person, more to do with ideas and thoughts that are going in my head. And this is really good because this is like it, it spits things out, but it makes something. At the beginning of this year, I did this free writing thing for an hour every day for I think 66 or 65 days because supposedly 66 is the median that it takes you to build a new habit. Turned out not to be true because I did it for 66 days and then stopped. But so much came out of that, but an hour was a little too much. So I'm just doing a half hour. Podcaster is still important to me, not only because I make one, but I get a lot of good information. I find books, I find articles from listening to podcasts. So I want to listen to podcasts for at least an hour a day and make time for that, not have it be something I'm squeezing in. And then lastly, I mentioned writing a diary entry. Diary entry is just, it's, it's literally the end of the day. I want to reflect on the day. What did I do today? What do, what will I want to remember that happened today? That's the main thing about the diary for me is that when I flip through in 10 years, what can I write in 30 minutes or less that when I read it will make me go, oh yeah, I remember that day. And sometimes that's hard, especially like in the time of like not having a lot of social events and social life, not leaving the house a lot except to walk the dog. Sometimes that can be hard, but I want to give myself that time. And by the way, the reason I use diary is because a diary and a journal are two different things. Did I mention this before? Sorry if I'm repeating myself. But a diary has to do with a specific date, a specific day. That's why diary and daily, they're almost the same word because they have the same root. Whereas a journal is just thoughts in a notebook that don't have dates attached to them. And I want to do that for 30 minutes every day or less. Actually, if I can do it in 15 minutes, that's probably even better because I, the reason not because of the time, but if I can get it out in 15 minutes, that means what I'm doing is really capturing the essence. If I go too long and I'm just, I'm doing a free write, I want to capture the essence of the day. 
So you take all those things I said, that adds up to six hours. But like I said, I want to do eight, but not strict eight. Number one, I want all of these activities to be able to go a little bit longer or a little bit shorter. Sometimes going through the old notes and the random notes goes really fast. I do it in 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes 45 because I hit some really long notes. Sometimes I walk the dog for an hour. Sometimes I walk the dog for an hour and a half. Sometimes the diary entry takes 15 minutes. Sometimes it takes 30. Sometimes the free write goes long. Sometimes I stall out at 25 minutes. I want time in between there to do things like eat and go to the bathroom, do client work, check my email, and to fit it all within an eight-hour day. Spoiler, I've been doing this for four days so far, and it's been awesome. It's been awesome. I feel, I feel useful again. When you, when you go through a period where you're not able to accomplish a lot, even though like I was still putting out podcast episodes and all of that, I always felt like I was in a state of panic. I always felt like I was rushed and I felt completely useless. I felt washed up, you know, like, ah, oh, my good years are behind me. Well, the last four days have proved that to be wrong. That's probably why these episodes have been getting thick. It's because I've got a lot of, putting a lot of work in, putting a lot of effort in, but it's not just accomplished by me deciding to do those things. I do have some techniques and some tools to share with you. I try to go through these pretty fast because there's not really a ton to talk about. One app that I'm using, I'm using this on my computer. I mentioned Obsidian, but one of the things with Obsidian, I'm hitting the random button, but after you hit the random button a few times and you fix the notes. I don't know how many I've gone through. Remember, I said I want to do 10. I don't know how many I've gone through. Well, there's a free app that I got for the Mac called Tally. And I think it's made by the same person who makes drafts. But basically all it does is allow you to tally numbers. So I added two tallies, one for old notes and one for random notes. And I open it in another window. And after I fix a note, I go over to that window and I click it. And now it says one. And I go back and hit random again. And fix that note and go back to tally, click it too. And then when I hit 10, you know, it gives me a little ding and I know it can move on. That's been great. Simple. I love simple tools. I love things that have one use and they do that one thing exactly the way you need it to. No bloat, no bullshit. Tally, T-A-L-L-Y. As always, links in the description. So you don't have to <laughs> memorize this stuff. Just go back and look at the notes. That's one of the times, I, that's one of the things I never mentioned. I, I try to put a lot of time into making sure that everything that I mentioned in the episode is in the notes for you so that you don't have to stop walking your dog to write down the name of the book that I wrote or that I wrote. Man, wouldn't that be awesome if I was writing that many books? <laughs> the book that I mentioned, you can just go back after you're done walking the dog or driving the kids to school or whatever you're doing and look at the show notes. Or go to the website and look at the show notes on the website. They're there too. Either way, in the podcast app on the website, there's the notes with the links. I try to find the links that take you to the thing. I try to save you guys as much trouble as possible because I hate, I hate when I listen to a podcast and I go, that was cool. What was that thing they were talking about? And there's nothing in the notes and I have to go back and like scan through the damn episode. I just feel like that's laziness on their part. Okay. Another thing that I'm using, this is a technique that I've never, I'm going to be honest, never had respect for, thought was stupid. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't see the point and that's time blocking. 
time blocking is exactly what it sounds like. I'm going to set aside this time to do this. I'm going to set aside this time to do this. And the essence of time blocking is you time block your whole day or at least your whole work day. So if I'm putting this eight hours, I'm blocking those eight hours. I want 30 minutes set aside for this. And that's going to be between 10 and 1030 and blah, blah, blah. Okay. It works. I had no respect for it until I started using it. It works. Now, of course, I put flexibility in my system. That's part of the reason I think it works. But it works because give it the flexibility that I give it, just a little bit of flexibility, just enough so it doesn't break, so it's not brittle. But by time blocking, by setting aside time, you're injecting just enough responsibility into the system that it basically it veers you away from being a lazy slacker. Just enough. It doesn't force you. But just enough, and it's shocking how much it motivates. It's shocking how much I get done simply because I set aside time for it. I do this every night. I look at everything that I have for the day, for the next day, and I time block it. And I'm doing this in an app. I've, I've gone through every productivity app you can imagine. This one is probably one of the most basic comparatively to, unless you're comparing it to Google tasks, which is just a joke. <laughs> Sorry if you use that, but it has like no features. This has very few features, but the features that it has are exactly for what I need it for. And it works perfectly. It's called sorted three, but it's written as sorted with cubed, you know, the cube symbol, the, the subscript of the three you have squared, then you have cubed. This is sorted three. Like I said, design-wise, it's very stripped down. It doesn't have a ton of millions of features. It doesn't have Kanban and doesn't have all this stuff. It's just, it's lists, tags, and then you, you it makes it so that you take your task and then you time block it. I'm not going to explain this super well because I think a lot of it is visual, but the main features that it allows you to do is number one, it allows me to auto schedule. So I've got my tasks put in there. Anything that's repeating is going to show up in my day automatically, including stuff from my calendar, which, which I love this. The stuff from my calendar shows up as a task. So for, for example, walk the dog for an hour shows up as a task. So after I walk the dog, I can mark it off and it's gone. It goes away. That's what I love. I don't have to look at it anymore because it's past. I don't want to look at it anymore. I only want to see what's left. So all of that stuff shows up in this list and some of them have set times. And some of them don't. So like, for example, like the time that I do the diary is typically the same time every night, except on the nights that I record. So I'll go in and I just, you can do this swipe from the right to the left on one task. And it brings up like this ruler on the side. And if you just run your finger down, so you do an upside down L, it'll select a whole bunch of tasks. So I just select all the tasks that I want to schedule that don't have time set for them already. And then I hit this other button that says auto schedule and the app goes and it reads every app that I put in. I mean, every task that I put in, I put in the duration that I want. Read nonfiction one hour. It knows I need one hour time block for that. And it makes a time block schedule for me for the day. Now, sometimes tasks aren't in the order that I want to do them. So I'll move them around in the order that I want to do them and hit the auto schedule again. And it does them in that order. But it's incredible. It's so cool. 
And there's this other feature, that ruler that I talked about. So like, uh, say one task goes over half hour. Well, that screws up everything afterwards, right? No problem. You just go over, you select all the tasks that are left and this ruler comes up and you just slide your finger down a little bit and it adjusts the time of every single task. For example, I want to move it, move everything up later by a half hour, right? I'm a half hour over. I want everything, all of the tasks that are left for the day, all of the calendar stuff left for the day. I want to move everything by a half hour. All I do is slide down a little bit, it moves in little five minute increments and I move it to 30 and everything on my list is adjusted by 30 minutes for that day. There are other features, but those are the killer for me. And it's paid for app. You know, it's not a monthly subscription. I think it was like $40 for the Mac app, which I don't really need. And like $8 for the iOS app. Totally worth it. Actually, I think $40 was for both. Totally worth it. I don't really need it on the Mac. I got it just in case, but could totally have just done this on my iPhone. And I promised to try not to say totally like four more times. <laughs> Sometimes I get stuck on a word. So that's how I'm doing the time blocking. That's how that's working for me. That's why it's working for me. Worth giving a shot. I think you can get like a week free using it. It's not what you expect. And I would suggest, you know what? I'm going to make a note for myself right now. I'm going to make a note to put a video in there for you. Video, shoe, Omi, sorted. There's a YouTuber who does a pretty good short, like five, six minute episode on this app. I'll give you a kind of an idea that I can't do because I'm not visual. Okay, let's move on. We have so much more to go. We're going to go long in this episode, I think. I want to talk a little bit about supplement stuff. Two little supplement things, a little bit of additions. I told you, still trying to perfect the sleep thing. I think I've done it. I think I finally got there. I finally got the last ingredient. In fact, this ingredient may supplant some of the other ones. I might need, might, might not need passion flour and chamomile as much now that I'm using this one, but there is a caveat. So what I'm talking about is Oli or Ollie? I'm not sure how you say it. It's O-L-L-Y. I'm going to go with Ollie because I like it. And I used to know a lot of skaters. So Ollie Immunity Sleep Plus Elderberry. Obviously, they make one that's not plus elderberry. And I know for a fact they make one that's just sleep. That's not Immunity Sleep. I lucked out and got Immunity Sleep because the sleep one was available in a smaller quantity in like this plastic container. The immunity sleep was in a zip plastic package that had twice as much in it. So it's like, oh, I'm going for that. And I had no idea that the immunity was part of it. I'm glad I did. These are gummies. The immunity part of it is essentially there's vitamin C in it. There's elderberry extract and there's echinacea in each of these gummies. So I figure, you know, it can't hurt to have the immunity in there with all the smoke that's been in the air for those of us in California and some of the neighboring states and with Delta variant going around, you definitely can't, can't have too much immunity right now and cold and flu season are coming up. So those are three, three reasons that the immunity is a nice bonus. The sleep components in these gummies, zinc, which I already take, but why not take a little bit more? You can't really go wrong as long as you don't 
go crazy with zinc. We have some sodium selenium in here. Selenium is good for relaxation and sleep. Some people say there's a couple of abstracts on PubMed about sodium selenium being something that also helps with defense against coronavirus. It also has some lemon balm in it, which I've never used before, but I know a lot of people that do the aromatherapy use lemon balm oil to relax. It has L-theanine in it. This is an extract that comes from green tea. This is the part of green tea that relaxes you. This is the stuff that's good for your heart. And then the last ingredient, the one that's probably the most effective, melatonin. This is a hormone your body naturally produces. This is the hormone that tells your body, time to go to sleep. And it works. It works. The caveat I want to say before I talk any more about melatonin, you have to be careful using melatonin on a consistent or long-term basis. There's not a lot of research into what happens. It's believed that if you continuously use melatonin for long-term periods, what you're actually doing is telling your body it doesn't need to produce melatonin anymore. So you become more dependent on melatonin supplementation and you don't want to do that. So what Ollie suggests on the Amazon page is take our supplements for two months and then take a couple weeks off. Then take it for two months and a couple weeks off. Ideally, if you're taking melatonin, what should happen actually is you get yourself into a healthy sleep pattern and then you don't actually need it. That's, that's what you really ideally want. The stuff works great. It really, the first night, and I only took, I was supposed to take two gummies. I wanted to start light. I always start every supplement. I get light by doing less than, than is suggested just to see how my body reacts. I only took one and I slept really well that night. So what it does is it makes me want to go to bed, but it's different than the chamomile because chamomile makes you like narcotically drowsy. It's actually, it's not a narcotic, but what I mean is you're like, oh man, you know that feeling when you're like passing out, falling asleep while you're watching TV? That's what chamomile can do to you. It's not bad. It's chamomile's perfectly healthy, but this is different. This actually go, makes me go, oh, I'm starting to get tired. And then I go to bed, but I never feel like I'm falling asleep on myself. It just makes me naturally come to the realization that I am tired and ready to go to bed, which is better for building habit because chamomile can be useful to make you, you know, help you to go to sleep, but it doesn't help you to build the habit of wanting to go to bed at a specific time. So you take these gummies a half hour before you ideally want to go to bed. And that's about when you're going to want to go to bed. It, it's pretty awesome. It really is. And what happens is I stay asleep more. So I wake up less. When I do wake up, I fall back asleep faster because I'm still drowsy. I don't, when I wake up, I'm not fully awake anymore. I am half asleep the way you're supposed to be when you wake up. So I get up, I go to the bathroom, I come back and I'm still kind of half asleep and I fall right back to sleep. That's wonderful. And I sleep more soundly, which I, those two are probably tied together. So I recommend this if you need to, you need some help. This is, this is definitely, I would say of all the things I suggested that this might be the best place to start with a sleep problem. Obviously, you know, going to the doctor first and you always want to talk to doctors before you take anything, you know, you, especially if you're taking medicine or other supplements, you want to make sure that nothing in here is going to interact because that'd be nasty. I'm not a doctor. 
And I don't know what your situation is. And the same goes for what I'm about to talk about right now, which is St. John's wort. I have mentioned before I take St. John's wort in a tea version. I've switched to pill form. I switched to pill form because I'm ready for more concentrated version. I got a, I don't know what the milligram is on it. I don't have the bottle in front of me, but I got one from Whole Foods. It's just the Whole Foods brand, St. John's wort. And it's, it's a little capsule, like a little black powder in it, which made me think of the age again from earlier. And the first day I took it, well, man, I had a really interesting reaction. I don't want to say strange because anytime you say strange, that's assumed to be negative. This isn't negative. I was doing something on the computer for several hours, just really focused on the computer. And then I caught myself and I'm like, oh man, I'm probably totally wired. If I work at the computer for too long, staring at the screen, doing repetitive things, we've talked about this previously, the repetitive task, how that can trigger the same pathway as anxiety for me. I was afraid that that happened. And I was also afraid that maybe, oh man, maybe the concentrated St. John wart, St. John's wart has the same effect on me that caffeine does because caffeine is like methamphetamine for me. That's why I don't do caffeine, even though now I know caffeine's not good for anyone. But for me in particular, I would drink a cup of coffee and be like, it was like doing rails back in the day. (laughs) I get so wired off that stuff. And I was afraid the St. John's wart did the same thing to me. And it was about nine o'clock at night. I'm like, Yo, you know what I'm going to, I'm just going to go over. I'm going to do a guided little 15 minute guided meditation and just trying to calm my body and my mind. My mind was everywhere too. And I sat and I did the 15 minute meditation. And I was fine. My heart wasn't racing. My brain was still very active, but it wasn't racing. It was just very active. And so I wasn't having a physiological effect from the pill in that sense. I wasn't getting that speed effect like caffeine. The next day, it was softer, but I still felt that alertness. And I don't know if this is a normal thing that happens from St. John's Wort, but the best way I can describe it is I, I, I took it today as well, and I had the same response as well. When I learned about Ritalin, Ritalin is a stimulant. It's not a methamph- it's not, it's not an amphetamine like, like Adderall, but it is a stimulant. It's a different family. And even though it's a stimulant, people with ADHD, when they take it, it actually, instead of making them scattered, it balances their brain chemistry in a way that allows them to actually focus in a way that they couldn't. And for some of them, a lot of them, it actually helps them with anxiety and depression, even though it's a stimulant, which stimulants can cause anxiety and depression in people who don't have ADHD. So I started thinking about that and I started to wonder if in some way the St. John's wart is balancing my brain chemistry in a way that's similar to the way that Ritalin balances someone else's brain chemistry. Because I'm super focused, I'm super concentrated on the task that's in front of me and not very distracted, but I'm not spun out like I would be from caffeine or probably from a stimulant like Ritalin. So I don't know if that's a normal effect or not, but I've been really enjoying it. I mean, the reason I started taking it is because it's supposed to take a little bit of the edge off of anxiety and depression. It's only for minor cases, but I figured it couldn't help. Even if it gave me like a 5% advantage, I would take that. So that's been cool. Once again, always check with your doctor before you even try any of this stuff. 
I will be insulted if you take this stuff and you hurt yourself because you took my opinion as advice. I'm not a professional in any way. All right. That said, let's move on to the media center. Yes, yes, we're only at the media center section, but don't worry. I actually only have three things in the media center. Then we're going to get to that gut stuff in the feature section. First thing, I'm going to recommend a podcast. There's only three episodes of this out right now, but I listened to all three of them yesterday, and it's Bad Blood, the final chapter. This is a podcast about Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of Theranos. Theranos was this unicorn in Silicon Valley that basically they they were promising to be able to do things with blood testing that nobody could figure out. Like, oh my God, like usually you have to take so much blood. How come they can do so many tests with like one drop of blood? And it was, everybody was invested in it. I think she even went to the, the White House to meet Obama. Everybody was just touting them as this extraordinary superhuman company that was going to rule the world. You know, they were saying that they were going to be able to help with the Ebola crisis. This, this podcast is not about the actual story of that. If you want to hear the story of that, there is an excellent podcast called The Dropout from a couple of years ago after it first happened. Excellent podcast. I would actually suggest if you don't know the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos to go listen to that first. Or even if you do know, I would, and you haven't heard that, you should. As well, after you watch the, or listen to the podcast, you could watch the documentary that HBO did called The Inventor. The podcast is better because it's more in-depth, but both of them together, great. And then listen to Bad Blood, the final chapter, because this is about how they're finally setting out to prosecute her. She's already, you know, been charged and all that, but it's finally coming time. She's going to court this year. And this is by the New York Times reporter who basically outed the fraud that she was doing. This is also, if you don't remember, this is a woman, she would dress like Steve Jobs. She wore the same clothes every day, black turtleneck. And according to the people who knew her before, once she became associated as the CEO, she started talking with a deep voice instead of her actual female voice, because she was trying to, this is speculation, but she was trying to present an air of being more masculine because that's what successful CEOs were to her. But the whole company was complete bullshit. It was a complete scam. And they'd finally go into trial. And I mean, there's a chance that she could get off because she is blaming her former partner, partner both in the company and partner sexually, like they were a couple, saying that he, that she believed all this stuff was real and that he had fooled her and he's probably going to blame her. It's a common tactic, but that's what this is going to be about. The first three episodes are excellent. The reason I'm recommending it is because not only is it good, but having gone through what we've gone through in the last year and a half with COVID, we've all learned a lot about things that we didn't understand before terms and things that we didn't know before. We know a lot about testing and a lot about infectious disease and virus terminology things that we didn't know before. And it's hard not to listen to this and have that information enrich it in a way that it wouldn't have before. And it also makes it really hard not to listen to this and think, 
If she had continued to get away with it, she would probably be scamming people right now on COVID testing in some way. And I think in the long run, that knowledge that we've gained from COVID is what's going to bite her in the ass because even your average juror is going to know more about all this than they knew before. You know, if you have a jury that doesn't know a lot about the science that you're supposedly fraudulating, you can get up there and trick people pretty easily because they don't know what you're talking about. But now that people are a lot more informed on some of this stuff, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult. So go check out Bad Blood, the final chapter. Let me know. Let me know. Three episodes. I'm hoping it's going to keep getting better. I'm hoping she's going to go to jail because she deserves to go to jail. There's a lot of things that she did that harmed a lot of people. Telling people they had diseases they didn't have, deadly diseases they didn't have, telling them they didn't have ones they did have. Awful. Not to mention all the people she fraudulated and like taking money. They were faking blood tests. All right. Next thing I want to talk about is a really excellent article that I ran across called Dancing with Systems. This is by Donella Meadows. This is just a really beautiful, logical piece of writing. It's essentially a list of thoughts on system thinking. And that sounds really boring. It's not. It's a really wonderful piece of writing. I'm I'm just, I'm going to share with you a couple snippets and ideas from it instead of just talking about it as a whole, because it's a list. So it's hard to really, I don't want to encapsulate it and ruin it. She says that the common popular model of science is based in a fallacy. And when she says she doesn't use a common popular model as her terminology, I'm using that. What I mean by that is the science that the way that the average person views science, not the way that like science views science. That's what I mean by common popular. So the way that the average person views science is kind of based in fallacy. We live under this assumption that everything in the universe can be measured and quantified. And then eventually, we, eventually we're going to be able to, with all of this knowledge, we're going to be able to construct a model of the world that makes it 100% predictable. We know why everything works and exactly what will happen when we do this. And that's never going to happen. Quote, we can never fully understand our world, not in the way that our reductionist science has led us to expect. Our science itself, from quantum theory to mathematics of chaos, leads us into irreductible uncertainty. For any objective other than the most trivial, we can't optimize. We don't even know what to optimize. We can't keep track of everything. We can't find a proper sustainable relationship to nature, each other, or the institutions we create if we try to do it from the role of omniscient conqueror. I love that, the omniscient conqueror, because that's what this model is saying, is we are going to conquer nature by understanding everything about how it works. But it's full of chaos. It's full of randomness. And because it's full of chaos and randomness, it can never become something that's reducible to a predictable model. Another thing she says is that some things don't need to be changed. We look at everything and we think, oh, I'm going to change that. I'm going to improve it. But she's saying 
not everything needs to be changed and improved. Sometimes it's better to actually look at something and understand what's going on and then nurture what's going on. I think the example that she uses is Latin America, going into a, a place in Latin America and looking at all these vendors on the street selling things and thinking, you know what they need? They need a conglomeration here. They need a corporation to take over. No, because that destroys the culture that's there. What they actually need is ways for them to be able to make their products better and quality control. And they need micro lending and all of these things that just nurture what's already there instead of trying to change it or replace it. Quote, don't be an unthinking interfeeder and destroys the system's own self-maintenance capacities. Before you charge in to make things better, pay attention to the value of what's already there. An example that she gives is she works at Dartmouth College. And in order to save energy, they took all of the thermostat controls out of the offices and classrooms. And they moved all the control of temperature to one centralized location where a computer could manage and make all the decisions on whether it should go up a degree or down a degree. They want to centralize everything, right? Sounds like you're simplifying it. We're going to make this easy. It's all going to be controlled in one place. Instead of having thermostats everywhere, this person's got it higher, this person's got it lower, and our bill is all over the place. We're not saving energy. We're wasting energy. So let's centralize it. Sounds like a logical decision, right? But that's looking at things that need to be changed instead of trying to understand what's already there and understand the value of what's already there. What happens at Dartmouth, the way that they change things, is it becomes a bureaucratic mess. When a teacher's room becomes too hot or cold, they now, quote, have to call the office across campus, which gets around to making corrections over a period of hours or days. And often they overcorrect the changes they make, which sets up the need to make another phone call. So in other words, before it's, man, it's hot in here. Turn that down. Turn it down. Everybody's less hot. Instead, now, man, it's hot in here. Hold on. Teacher has to break from class, go over, call the centralized location. Say, can you turn our temperature down? It's too hot in here. And the change happens hours or days later, which means that the class that's in there right now sweating is long gone. And then often they make it too cold and then it's freezing, which means you have to call again. Bureaucratic mess. Another approach would have been, she suggests, to observe the importance of individual and immediate control in regards to temperature and leave that the way it was. Leave the thermostats way they, the way they were under the control of the individual teachers. But to incentivize against overuse to save energy, charge the teachers directly for their energy use. So your classroom is always $100 more than everybody else's pay up. So the teacher can either, and that gives the teacher the choice to turn the thermostat down to save money or to say, you know what, it's worth it for me to pay that $100 in order to have at this temperature. It's not a perfect solution, but it's a better solution than the other one. That's her point. Quote, you can imagine why a dynamic self-adjusting system cannot be governed by a static unbending policy. It's easier, more effective, and usually much cheaper to design policies 
that change depending on the state of the system, especially where there are great uncertainties. The best policies not only contain feedback loops, loops, but meta-feedback loops, loops that alter, correct, and expand loops. These are policies that design learning into the management process. And then there's a, there's a section here that she says that totally reminds me of when we were talking about notes, the Zettelkasten and bottom-up thinking. This reminds me of bottom-up thinking. Quote, remember always that everything you know and everything everyone knows is only a model. Get your model out there where it can be shot at. Invite others to challenge your assumptions and add their own. Instead of becoming a champion for one possible explanation or hypothesis or model, collect as many as possible. Consider all of them plausibly until you find some evidence that causes you to rule one out. That way you will be emotionally able to see the evidence that rules out an assumption with which you might have confused your own identity. I love that. That's one of the hardest things for people to let go of an idea. One of the reasons we have so many problems letting go of an idea is because it becomes our identity. Just think for a minute about all of the political arguing that happens on Twitter. Most of them is identity posturing. Very little of it has to do with logic. Remember, in bottom-up thinking, contradictions are embraced because they broaden the scope of thinking. In the same way, she's saying that we should embrace our errors because they broaden our scope of thinking instead of narrow it. So check that out. It's a great article. I have, I'd never heard of Donella before. I am definitely going to pay attention for more of her writing. She does a wonderful job of explaining something that could be so dry, but she just does such a wonderful job. And there's a great section in there about caring and working caring into the system. Okay, we're going to hit one more. This is a heavy, heavy hitter. It's the book that I read this week, the fiction book I read this week. It's Kindred by Octavia E. Butler. This is a very unique book. This is often referred to as the first sci-fi written by an African-American author. This was actually didn't look to see the year this was actually published, but the story starts in 1976. And I believe it was probably written about then. And the main character, Dana, is pretty much for what I can tell a stand-in for Octavia Butler herself. She's a young, educated black woman who wants to be a writer. And what is really extraordinary about this book, so the premise of the book is that Dana, the main character, suddenly, without explanation, starts to kind of fade out in front of her husband. She starts to fade out of existence. And when she fades back in, she's not in 1976 in California. She's in the South in the 1800s. And she goes back and forth between the two several times. I think ultimately it's like four or five times. Every time she could time travels differently in different places. Like the first time, actually, I don't want to tell you too much about the story. One time she goes back and she is there for months in the past. And when she returns, she's only been gone like a couple hours in 1976. 
So she goes back and forth multiple times and spends different amounts of time trying to be as uh, non-specific as possible because it's really important to experience the, the book without me ruining a lot of it. But what's extraordinary about this book is it's really, it, it's using a sci-fi element, time travel. But it's, and I guess in some ways, a paranormal element too, right? Because there's no machinery involved. But it's taking her back to the South in the 1800s. And in that aspect, it becomes a book about slavery. Fairly historically accurate book about slavery. Not that the people that she's seen are historical figures, but the time and what's going on and the way the world works is accurate to history. And because there are some elements that have to do with some of the people that she sees are, are her ancestors. There's a memoir aspect to it in that way as well, even though it's a fictionalized memoir because it's not Octavia Butler writing about Octavia Butler. She's writing about Dana. But what's really interesting about it to me beyond those is the idea of taking at the time in 1976, a modern black woman and transporting her against her will to the South in the 1800s, it also becomes a horror at, at certain times. Talking about a free woman who is all of a sudden in a place where she's no longer considered a free woman, a free person. Imagine that. Imagine the horror of what that would feel like. And she's not like some history buff, which I really love. I hate time travel stories when someone goes back to time and it just happens to be the time that they're an expert on. She knows about as much as an educated black woman would know about slavery in the South. And some of the times when she comes back, she grabs a history book and tries to like pick up a little more information. I really loved that. But what I want to talk about is the complexity of what happens here. Because this is not a didactic novel. You could easily write a book about this didactic, like, yes, she goes back in time. It's awful. Slavery is terrible. Yes, we all know that. That's very obvious. And it's not to, to say, obviously, Octavia Butler being a black woman, she's not saying that slavery wasn't bad. But what she does is present a complexity here that actually exposes more than something black and white, simplistic, didactic like that would. Some of the things that she experiences aren't as bad as you would expect. And sometimes the things that you didn't think would be that bad are much, much more terrible. For example, one of the things that is surprising is the relationship between the slaves and the plantation owners. You would think that the slaves completely hated the owners. But Octavia says, or I should say Octavia writes, strangely, they all seem to like him, hold him in contempt, and fear him all at the same time. This confused me because I felt just about the same mixture of emotions for him myself. I had thought my feelings were complicated because he and I had a strange relationship, but then slavery of any kind fostered strange relationships. Only the overseer through simple, unconflicting emotions of hatred and fear when he appeared briefly. But then it was part of the overseer's job to be hated and feared, while the master 
kept his hands clean. And Dana comes to realize a really horrible truth, which is repeated over and over again. I'm going to give you four spread out short quotes. Number one, time passed. Kevin and I became, Kevin's her husband, Kevin and I became more a part of the household, familiar, accepted, accepting. That disturbed me too when I thought about it. How easily we seem to acclimate. Sorry, acclimatize. And she's talking about acclimatizing to living in slavery. Quote number two, was I getting so used to being submissive? Quote number three, I never realized how easily people could be trained to accept slavery. Quote number three, slavery was a long, slow process of dulling. This is, it's, it's difficult as, as a white male to talk about this topic because it's very obvious. I grew up as I grew up. And no matter how many books I read, I'm not going to understand fully what it means to be black, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be Chinese, what it means to be Mexican. I only know the experience that I've had. But reading, the, the only, you read books like this, not for entertainment, you read books like this to educate yourself, to understand different perspectives. That's the whole point of fiction, even if we're not talking about Reese or anything like that. Just the whole point of fiction is to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to understand somebody else. I will never understand Billy Pilgrim from Kurt Vonnegut's story completely because I never lived Billy Pilgrim's life. I will never understand any of the characters from Hemingway because I never lived their life. But I can walk in their shoes in this way. And I can understand to an intellectual level some of the things that I was ignorant to before. And the whole purpose of doing that is to talk about it. It doesn't mean that I am the source for what this means and what should be said about it, what should be talked about it. But it does mean that I have a duty having read it and educating myself the little bit that I'm able to educate myself to talk about it, to say something, to think something. That's how things change. People talk and converse and learn. So while this is difficult to talk about, and I will likely make some sort of misstep at least I'm talking about, which is what more of us should be doing. And what I want to say is that I think there's this, this concept that modern white people seem to fall victim to. I don't have a name for it. I tried to come up with a fancy name for it, but it's just that we think that we're so evolved that the fact that we are not racist is something that's innate to us. And we look back at the past and we look back at white people from the past. And we think if I was born, then I wouldn't have been racist. Bullshit. Yes, you would have. You know why? Because you would have grown up with it from the day you were born. It would have been indoctrinating you. It would have been consuming you. It would have been bleeding into you. Slavery, it wouldn't have been something that you just had to put up with. It would have been something normal to you. 
Everything that we understand as who we are comes from the people around us, the ideas around us, the world and society that are around us. They shape who we are. The idea of being, of not being racist is not something innate to your soul. Dana is a black woman. Octavia Butler is a black woman. Yet she feels discomfort in the reality of that time because the reality of that time even becomes normal for her. She, being a modern woman from 1976, born in the modern world, goes back to the 1800s, and the short time that she's in the 1800s slowly begins to accept the fact of slavery. And she wasn't even born and indoctrinated into it. You have a, you have a character in the book where there's, there's an exchange about the runaway slaves that are returned, how they come back, and they're, the character is telling Dana, you should see them when they come back, the way that they're beaten and they're chewed on by the dogs. And she's trying to tell her this because she's trying to tell her to slow her roll. What's going to happen to her, essentially. And Dana says, I would rather see the ones who get away. And the character says, I don't know if they exist. I don't know if, if slaves that escape exist. They're like people who die and go to heaven. No one ever comes back to tell you what it's like. They're so indoctrinated into this world that unless somebody comes back from being freed and tells them what it's like, they don't believe it's possible. That's what it's like when you're born in something that's considered normal and everything around you confirms that. It's kind of like, not moralistically, but metaphorically, it's similar to being on a long airplane flight when you're a person who's afraid to fly. At first, you're terrified. But after you're in the air for eight or 12 hours, you can't stay terrified the whole time. So what do you do? You acclimate. You get used to being on the plane. You eat something. You rest. You talk to your neighbor. And then the terror comes back for a little bit. And then it subsides, comes back, subsides. You normalize. Or like grief. Grief is not something that's constant. It's something that goes in waves. And you know why that is? It's because that's how the human animal is built. We are built to adapt. We are built to adjust even to the most horrible things. We adjust. So born into that world, most of us would have accepted it. You know how I know that? Because most of the people then accepted it. Yeah, there were a few exceptions, but there were sadly very few. You would be racist like everybody else. Because that would be our normal. We know that because most people then were. They weren't born that way. They didn't come into the world with stained souls. They're, we're not better than them. They adapted to their world, and we would too if we were stuck then. We were born then. You know, it's like these people that every time that they, they say, oh, I had a past life. Oh, really? Who are you in a past life? They're never a normal person. They were Cleopatra. Well, guess what? Like 8,000 women said that they were Cleopatra. They couldn't all be Cleopatra. It's this perspective that we want to have, that there's something great about us. But we're, most of us, are normal. And sadly, that means that in bad times, we adjust and become bad, commensurately bad with the times in which we live. In 50 years, people will look back at us as barbarians. 
as we live now in our, what we believe to be super evolved state. We're still just a few steps above cavemen. And this fear, this is, it's epitomized by Dana in this book. She has a fear of leaving her husband, Kevin behind that, that time thing that takes her, that will take her when he's not there and that she will leave him there. In one quote, she says, the place, the time would either kill him outright or mark him somehow that it would change him. And in another place, she says, a place like this would endanger him in a way I didn't want to talk to him about. If he was stranded here for years, some part of this place would rub off on him. No large part I knew, but if he survived here, it would be because he managed to tolerate the life here. And ultimately the book ends exactly where it begins. I'm not rooting anything here because this is the first scene of the book. Dana reappears from the past into the present, but when she reappears, her arm is stuck, has materialized inside the wall. So she loses an arm because nobody comes out of slavery whole. It's an extraordinary book. Go read it. I've heard there's a rumor they're going to make a television show of it. I hope they do it justice, but I don't know that it will ever compare to this book. It's, it's a masterwork of fiction and it's a masterwork of a book. It's a masterwork of a pseudo memoir. A wonderful book. All right, let's move on to the feature. We've gotten heavy. Oh, we might do this. We might do this in two hours. Okay, let's talk about the gut. Let's talk about guts, baby. This is, once again, I said, is the book Mind-Gut Connection, how the astonishing dialogue taking place in our bodies impacts health, weight, and mood by Emerin Mayer, PhD. I've been reading this book for a long time, and I, I mentioned before that I was going to bring it in. I just happened to finish it this week. So this, let's start with a quote. Your gut has capabilities that surpass all your other organs, and even rival your brain. It has its own nervous system, known in scientific literature as the enteric nervous system, the e or ENS, and often referred to in the media as a second brain. All of those productivity people out there talking about building their second brain, guess what? You're building a third brain. We already have two brains. There are 50 to 100 million more nerve cells in your gut than in your spinal column. There are more immune cells in the wall of your gut than in your blood and your bone marrow. The majority of the serotonin in your body is in your gut. Specifically, 90% of the serotonin in your body is in your gut. And in case you don't remember, serotonin is the hormone that stabilizes your mood, your well-being, and your happiness. Is it any wonder that your gut might be connected in some way to your mood, to your mental well-being? 90% of the serotonin in your body. There are more than 100 trillion microbes that live in your gut. 100 trillion microbes. These are living organisms, okay? Microbes are living organisms, which means 
not including our red blood cells. When you take those 100 trillion microbes that live in your gut into account, that means that only 10% of the cells in your body are actually human cells. That's how many cells of microbes are in your gut. If you were to include the blood cells, the red blood cells, then it would be 50-50. Human, not human. So we're really only half human. <laughs> Insane. Insane. So here's the question. The gut has all of these resources. 50 to 100 million nerve cells. More immune cells than our blood and our bone marrow, which basically means more immune cells than our body. 90% of our serotonin. What the hell is our gut doing with all this stuff? I thought it just moved poop. Quote, your gut gathers information about your food and your environment every millisecond. And it does this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even as you sleep. It takes all of this data that it's collecting about the microbes and about the movements of the food and the poop in your gut. And it transfers it through the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve, we have 12 cranial nerves. These are like the information superhighways of our brains, right? This is the stuff that's going out of our brains, these nerves. There's 12 of them. 11 of them connect to other parts of your brain. Like two connect to your eye in different ways, your jaw, your nose, your mouth, your tongue, you know, 11 of them. But one of them, the vagus nerve, runs all the way from your brainstem to your colon and your small intestine. And it connects to all of the organs along the way as well. You know, like your, your heart, your lung, your spleen, your stomach, your kidneys, your liver. And then it connects to the colon and the small intestine. The longest cranial nerve the, by far, because all the other ones are just in the head. This vagus nerve is the transfer of information between the gut and the brain. Okay. So it's collecting all this information and sending this information to the brain. But here's the interesting thing. You would think, okay, the communication, maybe it's 50-50. Brain says something and the gut says something. Or maybe you'd think that the majority of the signals are coming from the brain. But in fact, the majority of the symbol, signals are not coming from the brain and going to the gut. It's actually the other way around. All of that data that the gut is collecting, quote, 90% of the signals conveyed through the vagus nerve travel from the gut to the brain, while just 10% of the traffic runs in the opposite direction from the brain to the gut. In fact, the gut can handle most of its activities without any interference from the brain, while the brain seems to depend greatly on vital information from the gut. Did you catch that? The gut is autonomous. It can do stuff without the brain telling it to do it. But the brain needs information from the gut. Some scientists now believe that our emotions are actually a three-part system. Part one, brain. Part two, gut. Part three, gut microbiota. So the brain, the gut, and those hundred, what was it, a hundred million, hundred trillion microbes living in your gut. That's where emotions come from. 
that's kind of weird to think about that these things that aren't human cells are one of the three legs of our actual emotional structure. So basically, we are born with simple or basic emotional circuitry. This is stuff that we get from our genes. And then as we grow up, especially in the early years, the basic circuitry is tweaked from environment and experience, kind of similar to like what we were talking about with kindred. The things around you tweak who you are. Quote, however, the full development of emotions and gut reactions requires an extensive lifelong learning process by which we train and fine-tune our brain-gut microbiome system. Our unique personal development, lifestyle, and eating habits all fine-tune our emotion-generating machinery, creating a vast database in the brain that stores highly personal information. In other words, our gut is collecting piles and piles of info. It's collecting the responses of our gut microbiota. What is everything doing to the microbes in our gut? How are they responding? And it's taking that reams and reams of information and sending it up the vagus nerve, 90% of the communication going up that vagus nerve to the brain about the gut microbiota. And what the brain is doing is it's taking that information, it's associating it with experiences, it's cataloging it, and then it's altering our concepts of emotion. It's altering our understanding of what emotion means by taking into account what it does to the gut. When your gut does this, you were doing this. Therefore, when someone yells at you, your gut does this. Therefore, that means this. Sad means this signal from the gut. Angry means this signal from the gut. Nervous means this signal from the gut. Quote, signals arising from the gut and its microbiome, including chemical, immune, and mechanical signals are encoded by a vast array of receptors in the gut wall and sent to the brain via nerve pathways, in particular the vagus nerve, and via the bloodstream. This information in its raw format is received in the back portion of the insular cortex and then processed and integrated with many other brain systems. We only become aware of a small portion of this information in the form of gut feelings. Even though they originate in the gut, gut feelings are created from the integration of many other influences, including memory, attention, and effect. While the basics of emotion could probably still be generated in an imaginary brain in a jar, completely isolated from the gut and the body, such a brain would have a very limited repertoire of emotional experiences. I strongly feel that it is the engagement of the gut and its microbiome that plays a major role in determining the intensity, duration, and uniqueness of our emotional feelings. Wow. Another quote. It would hardly make sense that evolution has come up with such an amazingly complex data-gathering and processing system only to throw the collected information away. This library of gut feelings is composed of an enormous amount of personal and salient information about each of us that has been collected every second of the day, 365 days a year. The current scientific thinking is that this information is stored in an exponentially growing database 
analogous to data collection systems created by companies and government agencies. The data collected in our brains is about highly personal experiences, our motivational drives, and our emotional reactions to these experiences, which our brains have been constructing since birth and maybe even in utero. So our gut and our emotions are tied inextricably together. They're part of the same thing. Anger causes stomach contractions and actually twists our intestines. Depression freezes it, slows it down. Your gut mirrors the emotions that arise in your brain. To understand this, we have to understand a little bit about the digestive process. This is actually one of my favorite parts. If you don't want to hear about things happening in the gut, you might not like this part, but it's not super descriptive. But if you have a problem with poo, <laughs> here's the basics of the digestive process. Number one, your stomach fills with hydrochloric acid. This actually happens before you chew or even swallow. Your stomach's filling with this super, it's like battery acid. That's how strong this acid is. Number two. When the food reaches the stomach, the stomach exerts grinding forces. And the stomach itself actually grinds food down into small pieces. Number three, your gallbladder and your pancreas injects into the small intestine. It injects bile. And the bile is for breaking down fat. It also injects a variety of digestive enzymes. So the food's still in your stomach, but your gallbladder, your pancreas are going, all right, get the bile and the enzymes ready because that stuff's coming through soon. Soon as that stomach's finished grinding that stuff up, which means number four, the food moves from the stomach into the small intestine where the bile and the enzymes break those small pieces in the gut down even more and they become absorbent nutrients. Number five, this is when peristalsis begins. Peristalsis is muscular contractions of the intestinal wall, which moves food through the digestive tract. This is how food moves down and become poo. It's going to keep moving through. Okay. And the speed with which it moves depends on the food because remember all those sensory cells and nerve endings that your gut has, it knows what kind of foods in there and it knows, okay, this is meat. We better move it slower so we can digest it. Or this is sugar. Let's push it through fast. It knows these things and adjusts. Number six, other intestinal contractions move food toward the lining of the small intestine. So it's pushing it out towards the lining of the intestine so that those nutrients that it's being broken down into can be absorbed into the lining of the intestines. This is how we get nutrition. Number seven, the large intestine. The next step, right? The large intestine produces contraction waves, moving contents back and forth. And what this does is it enables the large intestine to extract 90% of the water that's in the contents of the gut. And then it can absorb the water from it. 90% of the water. And then number eight, final step, separate contractions. They move the contents towards the rectum. You guessed it. This is a feeling we all know. This is the feeling of, oh, I better grab a magazine. That's number eight. But that's not all that your gut does. Because 
your gut does something else that happens between your meals. Quote, between meals, a different pressure wave, the migrating motor complex, serves as your gut's housekeeper, sweeping out anything else in your stomach that couldn't dissolve or break down into small enough pieces, such as undissolved medication and unchewed peanuts. This wave slowly travels from the esophagus to your rectum every 90 minutes, generating enough pressure to crack a Brazil nut and sweeping undesirable microbes from your small intestine into the colon. Unlike the peristaltic reflex, this housekeeping wave operates only when there's no food left to digest in your GI tract. When you're sleeping, for example, and it switches off as soon as you take your first bite of breakfast. He doesn't talk about this, but I need to say that this is why when you read about fasting, intermittent fasting, one of the things you hear over and over again is that you should at least go 12 hours without eating every day. The reason that you should be eating for 12 hours out of 24 is because the 12 hours, you need this stuff going on. You need your gut cleaning itself out and picking up all the leftover shit, literally. But if you eat, the moment, like it says, the moment you eat, this process stops and the other one starts. So if you continually eat and you maybe only take eight hours off, you're giving your gut eight hours to do a 12-hour job, which is going to lead to things like colon cancer and diverticulitis and awful, awful gut stuff. And it's going to lead to really uncomfortable food processes. So that's part of the reason that they say that it's not really fasting. That's how it's naturally supposed to, we have circadian rhythms, 12 hours, 12 hours. That's how that's supposed to work. Okay. This entire process, it actually occurs, like I said, it occurs without direction or intervention from the brain. The gut does this all on itself. You know, when we want to move our finger, our brain has to say, finger move, finger move, finger move. We want to do anything else in our body. The brain sends the signal, but the gut says, don't worry. I got it covered. I know what to do. That's why they say it's the second brain because it can think for itself. It acts autonomously and it's using those nerve cells, those millions of nerve cells, unless you cause your emotional brain to disrupt the process. Remember it said 90% of the information in the vagus nerve is going from the gut up to the brain. 10% is the brain interrupting the process. And that happens when we have emotional disruptions. Quote, if your dinner conversation takes a wrong turn and you get into an argument with your friend, your stomach's wonderful meat grinding activity is quickly turned off and instead goes into spasmic contractions that no longer allow it to empty, empty properly. Half of that tasty steak you ate will remain in your stomach without further digestion. Long after you've left the restaurant, your stomach will still be in spasms as you lie awake because there is still food in your stomach. The nocturnal migrating contractions, they won't happen, preventing the usual overnight cleansing of your gut. The brain rarely interrupts the gut, but when it does, it supersedes it. 
You know, it's like the supervisor coming in, stop the assembly line. That's what happens. That something as simple as a disagreement over dinner can disrupt your whole digestive process. Not just while you're feeling upset, but the whole process all the way from beginning to end. Furthermore, quote, in a randomized blinded study, French investigators gave 55 healthy men and women a month-long regimen of daily probiotics containing species of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. Those in the probiotic group showed a small improvement in psychological distress and anxiety compared to those taking the control product. In another study, British researchers gave a different lactobacillus species to 124 people. In people who were more depressed, when the study began, the treatment significantly improved their mood. So our emotions can screw up our gut. But our gut, and a healthy gut, and putting probiotics in your gut can do the reverse. It can help our brain. It can elevate our mood. Because remember, it's one of the, actually it's two, if you include the microbiota and the gut itself, two of the legs of that tripod of emotion. It's also been shown that chronic stress increases your chances of getting gut infections. And it'll go on for longer than the stress. You know, your gut is going to suffer the consequences of that stress longer than the stress. So if you're stressed for two days, you might suffer for a month with gut problems from that two days of stress. And I can attest to this. Anxiety in the past has screwed up my gut really bad. I know other people that this happened to as well. And I mean for months and months at a time, just awful experiences with the gut. I'm starting to formulate a tripod of mental and physical health for myself, which is number one, mindset, number two, sleep, and number three, gut, which includes diet. All three of those things are connected. They all affect each other. Mindset affects the gut like we just talked about, and gut affects the mindset. Sleep affects the gut, and sleep affects your mindset. Mindset affects your sleep. Your gut can affect your sleep. They're all connected. And as I've been learning, if you screw up one of them, you screw up the others, like I said. But also, if you begin to heal one, it starts to help the others as well. Now, in the book, he goes on more about diet and what you should be doing. One thing that interesting sidebar that I just want to throw in here that's not connected to what we're talking about specifically, but it is about the gut. We talk about probiotics and all of these things and having a healthy microbiome in your gut. Here's the thing. No matter what you do, if you go vegan, you have a completely varied diet, you do everything you're supposed to do, you take as many probiotics you're supposed to do, you're never going to alter your, your gut microbiome. That pretty much is set from birth until like three years old. It's pretty much set from there. But you can't change the animals that are in your farm, but you can make sure that the animals that live in your farm are healthy. And that they don't kill each other. You know, you feed the cows well, feed the sheep well, make sure the chickens are doing well. That's what taking probiotics, it's a mistake in advertising that they tell you you're going to change the actual composition of your gut. Those bacteria that you're putting in don't live there. They don't stay there. They don't. They're just temporary inhabitants, but they help the overall health of the ones that actually live there. And I learned that from this book.
So it's, it's good to know that. It's good to know about the guy. You should read this book because I, I mean, I just, I pulled out at best, like 4% of this book at best. I just pulled out the stuff that I thought was relevant to things that we talk about on a regular basis, which is health of the mind and sleep and how those are all connected and emotions. So all that kind of fit together for me. I hope you got some value out of that. Oh my gosh, we're actually under two hours. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I don't know if you can hear that. I actually did it. <laughs> Once again, don't forget to go check out my other podcast, Random Badassery, the one I do with my friend, Lamb. And let me know what you think of it. Hope you enjoy it. It's a different side. It's the conversational side of this show. If this is the solo side, that's the duo side. It's a lot of fun. I'm glad to be doing it again. If you want to say anything, you want to tell me about, oh, I don't want to hear about your gut. I was going to say, you want to tell me about your gut? I don't want to know about your poo. You want to tell me about how you think your gut and your emotions are connected. And you want to tell me about kindred? Maybe you've read kindred. Maybe you have some thoughts about what I said. Controversial, some of it that I said. Please, I'm, I'm open to hear that. You can go to immattersbutitdozen.com forward slash contact. Just be polite. I try to be polite in my show. I expect any responses I get to be polite. If you're a jerk, I'll ignore you. It's that simple. I won't invalidate your thought. I just won't respond. You can also leave a voice message on the answering machine. That is uh, 1-669-245-6098. Who will be the first brave soul to leave a message? Who will be the first brave soul? want to throw out, as always, thank you and much love to my patrons, my supporters over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall. Put up some bonus audio for you guys this weekend. And I don't, I don't know if I remember to do this often enough. Maybe I've said that before that I don't remember to do this. But please, share this episode. If you think uh, somebody, somebody out there needs to hear about some gut stuff, send them this episode. Share it with people who appreciate it. Don't share it with just anyone. Be discerning. I'm not trying to be uh, super popular. I just want, I want the, the reason I make these shows, I read these information is because I am amazed by the things that I learn and I want them to share. I want to share it with people who will also be amazed by the things that are out there to learn in the world. So when you pass this show on, pass this on to people who will be amazed to learn these things as well. That's all I ask. Anything else you want, you go to it matters but it doesn't.com. And if you are a social media person, I have not been doing a lot of social media because I'm putting all of my work into that schedule I told you about earlier. And that's bringing me a lot more joy than social media does. But if I'm to get a notification, I hope it's a notification of some of you out there seeing if a public phone, a public pay phone and taking a photo of it and tagging me. That's something I would be happy to take a moment out of my day to look at. So if you see those dinosaurs out there, those fossils, those future fossils, oh, that's, that's a really good podcast, by the way. If you see those, take a picture, tag me. And before we get out of here, remember, be kind, be kind to your gut. And never forget, I love you, babies. Mm -hmm.